good heavens, Wayne, you're in Poolville again. <laughs> yeah, let's give it a whirl. We're back at good heavens. <laughs> you're back. You uh, came all the way out here again. This is uh, what was the last month you were out here as well. Yeah, it's been a while. Quite a drive from Irving, Texas to Pool Te- Poolville, Texas, but here you are. Uh, in our little barn studio out here in the Texas countryside. That's right. Uh, how you been? Been good. Everything going well? Very well. Yeah. And you gave a talk uh, not too long ago. What was that? I gave it a talk at a creation meeting in Dallas, a group called the Metroplex Institute for Origins Science. It was about the solar system. I called it uh, um, Dancing Planets and Stumbling Theories. <laughs> that's good. I, I wish I could have made that, but uh, that's great. It's really good. It's a lot like what we what we did in a couple of podcasts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, then I surprised you today with uh, a copy of our book. You saw yes. it first time you've seen the book. What, do you, what do you think? It's great. <laughs> it, it's very nice. It is the, nice color pictures. It's very nice. It's good size. It's not too big. It's not yeah. too small. Yeah. And the pictures are colored, and your essay is chapter seven, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, today we are going to take a little diversion from talking about the heavens, although this does have something to do with the universe, of course, because we're going to be talking a little bit about Earth. Right. Uh, Our planet, which is a little planet in the heavens, of course, but uh, we're going to be focusing today on the flood. And did it happen? There's a lot of um, uh, discussion about Noah and you know, and I've been through modern apologetics for the last five years, and there's just not a lot of um, arguments that uh, validate or support the flood. But when you go into creationist literature, it's it's all over the place, that it's very important. It's a crucial aspect of understanding the authority of Scripture. And I think it's not just the flood, but really what it, what's riding on that is the authority of Scripture and how we know uh, what we know about the flood. Absolutely. And uh, in modern apologetics, there's a lot of emphasis on how naturalism has a a kind of steered biology astray. Mm -hmm. And then uh, intelligent design is kind of an answer to that. But naturalism as a presumption has also steered geology astray. Right. But that's not addressed much in modern apologetics. No, Uh, I think if I've seen anything take more mocking and vitriol from skeptics and unbelievers it's the story of noah and the flood in genesis 6 through 9 that really gets uh run under the coals if you will people really go after that yeah i think what happens is kind of a lot of atheists like to pick on the flood and the ark and say but but what what they're really kind of saying i think usually is um uh they want to create doubt about the judgment of the flood and yeah. they they do it by bringing up what they think is uh, the scientific issues about it. So, so the idea is that if you can uh, create doubt about the science of could this happen and the science about could an ark hold all these animals and so on, mm-hmm. if, you, if you deal with that, which to people who aren't familiar might sound like a fairy tale or a, or a mythical story or something, mm-hmm. how can the judgment be real if the the rest of it is not real yeah if you can if you can denigrate the details or make the details look like a children's novel or a children's book or you just make fun of them but you know making fun is all i really see mm-hmm. a lot of times people will say well science the science of geology has disproved the bible but there that is a presupposition that you just step back and take a look at the fact that you don't take geology to learn ancient biblical hebrew it's they're two separate disciplines and the right. the science of rocks is not the primary way by which we interpret scripture and the science of rocks is not finally the final authority of how we interpret scripture right and it's worth making a point you know i've had some interaction with geologists dan and uh geologists mostly do things like looking for oil and minerals and mm-hmm. such and uh, finding oil, oil and minerals, natural gas, those kind of things, doesn't really pertain a great deal to issues about the origins and age of the Earth necessarily. No, what, what they really do, uh, it, but but they're trained in what the discipline of what's called historical geology, and that's where they 
they they get the whole evolutionary approach to understanding geology. Right. But geologists are kind of just exposed to one side. So there's a there's it's a a good distinction to make because today we're going to be talking a lot more <clears throat> about historical geology mm-hmm. than what you've just described in terms of practical geology. How mm-hmm. do we practice right. our rocks? We we got to know the basics of how to dig through rock to get to the oil and the gas that we want. That's mm-hmm. practical geology, absolutely legitimate science. People do it all the time. We would right. be not driving our cars without that practical science in place. That's right. So when we're talking about geology, we are making a distinction here between that practical applied science mm-hmm. versus what we're going to talk about more today is the historical development or the, the theories of how rocks in the world, mountains, rocks, and canyons were formed, the historical assumptions that go all the way back to the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. So, right, uh, how to get the oil out of the ground is one thing. Right. Uh, the history of the earth is a whole different thing. Exactly. So please take note of that as we go through this discussion. When we talk about geology, we're principally talking about the historical aspects of the development, the history of rocks on our planet. That's right. basically what we're talking about. So right. a great place to start uh, in any discussion about the history of the earth mm-hmm. is with who made the earth. <laughs> who made it. <laughs> who made it. And, of course, the Genesis, the, the text that we have that tells us is Genesis. And uh, Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Probably one of the most widely translated, widely spoken sentences and all of literature and history in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth we don't get an exposition of where god came from which makes scripture so unique we don't get a theophany we don't get an explanation of where god came from god is presumed to exist and has existed uh, Mm -hmm. for all time he has never not existed right this is an explanation these are the generations of the heavens and the earth yes and so we're going to begin today by talking about geology where we should begin with jesus Mm-hmm. And so the first thing to, to recognize is that the, the flood story is in Genesis, the book of Genesis. Its traditional author is Moses. If you were a Jew in the first century, when Jesus said Moses, he meant the, the primary books that were written by Moses. Right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Moses, mm-hmm. that, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And Jesus affirmed Moses's existence, Jesus affirmed Moses's authorship, mm-hmm. and Jesus affirmed Moses's authority. Mm-hmm. And we can see in a couple of places we're going to read. You're going to read a little bit from Matthew, uh, where Jesus is talking about the judgment. What does he say there in Matthew about Noah's flood? Yeah, so Jesus was talking about his own uh, return in the future. Mm-hmm. And he says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So will, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And it's interesting you say there, he um, talks about... Noah and his family entering the ark. And in Genesis, we read that uh, the pre-incarnate Christ, who was not yet named Jesus, but Yahweh, who is later to be revealed as Jesus in the New Testament, actually closes them in the ark. Mm -hmm. Noah didn't close the door. Noah's family got in, and Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ, the Lord uh, Yahweh, closes Noah and his family into the ark. So what we're trying to establish here is that Jesus was a first-hand eyewitness person. He was the one who brought the flood. He knows that it occurred. Yeah, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. Yeah, in John chapter 8. Before Abraham means way back there. (laughs) (laughs) And that was one of the statements in John chapter 8 where the the Jews began to seek a a reason to kill Jesus because he was Mm -hmm. equating himself with Yahweh. How did you, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? (laughs) You know, and so we're establishing here that 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 Jesus affirms the flood because he brought the flood. He put Noah and his family into the ark, and then caused the flood to happen upon the earth. Right. So this, of course, it's always uncomfortable, Dan, to talk about God's judgment. Um, but I I like to remind myself of this uh, this way. 
if God just let evil go on forever and didn't take action against evil in the world, then he would not be holy. Yeah. And he would not be a good God. Yeah. So this is a... God cannot just ignore evil forever. Right. Um, In Luke, at the end, after Jesus' resurrection, and the disciples are headed back to... A couple of the disciples are headed back to Emmaus. uh, Jesus appears to them and begins walking along the road with them, and they don't recognize him. And uh, he... (laughs) One of the disciples says to him, don't you know what has happened in these days? Mm. (laughs) Are you Mm -hmm. not the only one who doesn't know what has happened? And he's probably the only one who does know what happened. (laughs) So there's some irony there. But um, he he was clearly trying to get their reaction and get them to talk about what they were thinking. It was a setup. It Um, it was to help them think it through. Right. Uh, But when Jesus begins to speak to them, uh, he says, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then Luke records the next verse. He says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Mm. So right here, Luke is giving us another affirmation of the legitimacy, the historicity, and the truth of Moses, of everything written in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, and such. And so this, we, we are establishing here the fact that the primary way, Wayne, that we as Christians know a flood happened, uh, we don't have to become geologists or scientists. There's nothing wrong with that. We're not disparaging that at all. But just alleviating the burden of having to become a geologist in order to prove to skeptics that the flood happened. That that our primary our pri- there's nothing wrong with science and of course there, we're going to talk a little bit more a lot about the geological evidence that's there for a flood, but the primary way that we know the flood happened is because of the testimony that Jesus has given us uh, uh, has his affirmation of Moses's testimony right. as written in Genesis. Yeah, and that's that's primary really, and uh, uh, the Apostle Peter. Writes about yeah, the I, flood, have so I have that. I have that. 2 Peter 3, mm-hmm. uh, chapter 3, verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Of course, Peter is affirming the Genesis creation, mm-hmm. through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about the the coming judgment. The present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire and kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So the flood of the past is a reminder uh, to us of God's judgment upon the sin of mankind, which is not pretty. Uh, it's not easy to talk about, but it is a forerunner to the kind of judgment that will the final judgment that will result when Jesus returns. And so it's, it's, it's weird, Wayne. It's like, I've seen this and you have too, interacting with skeptics and unbelievers. What you said earlier, that really what's at the heart of this is going after uh, mocking Mm -hmm. God's judgment, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what happened at Calvary. Mm -hmm. When God judged sin in Jesus, what were people doing as they walked by the cross, mocking him? Um, and saying all kinds of things. Even one of the thieves on the cross were mocking him mm-hmm. as as he was dying. And so th- this idea of, <laughs> I find there to be a proportionality to the kind of mocking that is invaded against Scripture. Uh, it seems to be directly proportional to the kind of judgment that God is rendering upon mankind. We don't like it, mm-hmm. so we mock it. And people just don't, right. people don't understand that. So the point, really, of the judgment that it says is coming is not that okay i should want the judgment to happen today no i don't want it to happen today no 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 uh i don't want all all the atheists in the world to be wiped out in judgment today no 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 i want people to consider scripture and who is jesus and come to faith so that they don't go through the judgment right because the judgment in christ was everything in the Old Testament. I mean, it's, it's God's wrath poured out on his son for the sake of the world, as John says, that God so loved the world. 
that uh, yeah. he gave us Jesus, his only begotten son. That, and, and God is waiting. He's waiting to give people a chance to figure right. this out and come to faith. So something like... I, I did. Yeah. I was an agnostic. Yeah. And I came to faith when I was 20. And uh, I, so we're trying to give other people a chance. And one of our contributors in our book, uh, Dr. Salviander, Sarah Salviander, she became a Christian studying astrophysics. Mm-hmm. She was an atheist. She was mm-hmm. raised in an atheist home. Mm-hmm. And in her study of astrophysics, she's like, how can any of this just be, you know, accidental? Right. But um, so that, that establishes the fact that now why, why are we beginning with Jesus? Well, ultimately, he became incarnate, left us with the record, affirmed the testimony of Moses, uh, taught his disciples for, for three years. We have verified independent testimony of what Jesus did and said in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then in Paul, in 1 Corinthians, we have the attestation of Jesus' birth, of his growth, of his teaching, uh, of his life in, in snippets given in the Gospels, and then we have his death, his burial, and then his resurrection, which was attested to in all four Gospels, as well as the letters of Paul. And what atheists and skeptics never really come up with is a satisfactory explanation for the origin of Christianity apart from the resurrection. The, mm-hmm. be- the best explanations that I've heard from skeptics, and I wouldn't even call them the best ones, but the ones that they seem to cling to the most are the ones that talk about the disciples having delusions or um, hallucinations or something like that, group hallucination. But that does not explain uh, the origin or, or why Christianity sustained itself through a great deal of persecution. But I think my point there is that Jesus resurrecting affirms that he is Yahweh, the mm-hmm. God of the God of everything, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And therefore, his word is true and that we can trust that his affirmation of Moses means that Genesis is true. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's where I rest because I don't have time to be a geologist. Uh, but But I am interested in the geological sciences. And uh, so we've given a scriptural affirmation of the flood. We've established Christ's authority. But let's let's get into a little bit about the historical aspects and some of the more scientific, uh, what, what science shows us today about how, um, in, in real layman terms, because I'm a layman in terms of geology, uh, we're not going to get too technical, but we are going to talk a little bit about uh, the historical development of geology. And then, uh, Wayne, you're going to share with us some uh, sciences from, you have a, uh, while I'm looking this up here, talk a little bit about the uh, paper you've got on your website. Yeah, I, I have a blog on my website, and it's uh, creationanswers.net slash answers blog. And right now, the recent issue is called, Was There a Global Flood? And I go through a list of things uh, about geology that point to a global flood. Um, I've had the interactions with geologists, Dan, and uh, geologists are aware of assumptions that they make, and geologists know how to go out in the field and figure out things about rocks, mm-hmm. right? And uh, find fossils, and they they infer things about the rocks from the fossils, and the fossils from the rocks, and so it's uh, there's a lot to this. But geologists make certain assumptions and but those assumptions are not the only way of looking at the facts mm-hmm. there's always another way and and so if you won't go back to the 1800s there were there were there were very few people in the world that you could call geologists it really wasn't a formal discipline it was more yet. like natural philosophy you just yes yeah. and, now medicine was a little more developed as a mm-hmm. science or at least for anatomy right but uh back then uh there wasn't much real geology as a formal discipline not a lot of going out into the field and looking at rock layers and things like that a lot of theoretical right there was there was science in terms of physics more developed and some chemistry so anyway some scientists were studying things that we would call geology and uh but it didn't begin with the idea that the earth was billions of years old no. and, and evolution. Actually, geology started on a more uh, biblical mindset, and they believed uh, n- that the Noah's flood, or what I, I like to call it God's flood, actually, Dan. <laughs> I, it really wasn't Noah's idea. It <laughs> yeah. was God's idea. So I, right. I, I, I say Noah's flood, but it really would be better to call it God's flood. Sure, um, sure. Anyway, sure. So anyway... Ge- uh, geologists, some of the first geologists in Britain 
believed in the flood and they interpreted things in, in the light of that. So that made them look at things differently. They believed that there was this major catastrophe that happened in Earth history in Noah's flood. So if, if there really was a catastrophe like this, what would it do to the Earth? Mm-hmm. So they approached the facts when they went out and studied the, the rocks. They asked that question. And so it became the <clears throat> what a theory that developed was called catastrophism. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I wanted to briefly mention here, in that history and the development, that a lot of the early, what we would call, what you were saying, the early geologists were not were not geologists like we, we know today, but they were clergy. A lot of them were clergy mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Christians or Anglicans. Um, some of them were not. Some of them were deists. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them had a more agnostic atheist bent, as we'll see. But uh, just really quickly, a really quick history of, of what you're talking about here. It began with James Hutton, who mm-hmm. was a Scottishman. And he really is credited with being the, the individual, one of the individuals, the primary individuals who uh, put forth the idea that the layers in the rock. So if you go to the Grand Canyon and you're driving along a highway through the mountains and you see the lines in the rock layers that have been blasted out or cut through, you see lines. We call those strata. Mm-hmm. And so Mr. Hutton was the first one to kind of suggest that those lines of strata were laid down gradually over time through sediment and mud over long periods of time. And then... You had uh, William Smith, who was an English, who was a, a drainage engineer and a land surveyor. Uh, he is known as the father of English stratigraphy, but he was a catastrophist. And basically, what catastrophism was was, as you said, it was it really it, it was the model that most Christians accepted, but it really wasn't. It was partially based on the flood, but it was also more along the lines that that local floods and local catastrophes right. shaped things it wasn't when when we say catastrophism from this period it wasn't like uh, one single noah's flood it was more of like little deluges here and there but these catastrophists as you said uh did did uh accept the flood more or less if they were deists or at least you know uh, moderately christian but um it wasn't until we had william buckland who was the teacher of Charles Lyell. Now, mm-hmm. Buckland was a catastrophist, mm-hmm. and his student, Charles Lyell, was the one who, in 1830, wrote the book Principles of Geology. Mm-hmm. Lyell resurrected James Hutton's idea of slow, gradual, what we now call uniformitarianism. Right. And basically, Lyell was advocating that over time, again, like Hutton, uh, sediment layers, mud and rock got laid down gradually mm-hmm. over time and that the laws and the mechanisms of Earth, the geology of Earth is the same as it was eons ago. It's the same as it is today. And that really began the sort of the undermining of the authority of Scripture regarding the flood. Because here with Hutton and Lyell, you have the introduction of this long period of time uh, in order to describe the rocks. Now, why would Lyell want to do that? Well, uh, you, we talked about this before the broadcast, that uh, Lyell is famous for a quote, and that has been attributed to him, that he was not particularly fond of Christianity. Right. Uh, and Lyell saw himself as the spiritual savior of geology, freeing the science from the old dispensation of Moses. Free us from Moses. Right. So kind of like uh, the uh, number 16 and the the Korah's rebellion against Moses. Yeah. (laughs) We have uh, Lyell, who who really wanted to free people from the idea of of the authority, the cultural authority, the spiritual authority, the, the... Authority of Moses in terms of the flood. Right. And if you could explain this, the rocks, um, through a gradual uniform process over many eons, millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, uh, then by degrees you could pretty much eliminate the idea of, of a global flood as described in Genesis. Now, it would be enough if we stopped at Lyell, but guess who Lyell got with? in order to confirm a story about the rocks. Lyell. Con- Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin and Charles Lyell, the two Charleses, a tale of two Charleses, yes. uh, got together <clears throat> and created a schematic that's more or less still in place today mm-hmm. where 
if you so the rocks at the bottom of a layer would arguably be the youngest or the oldest and then the rocks at the very top are arguably the youngest and so Lyell and Darwin got together and they said well if you find a fossil down here it's this old because this rock is this old and so on and so on and so on and they made a uh, they made a uh, schematic out of the rock strata but that is a purely theoretical uh, historical speculation that really has no uh, basis, I guess, in, in, in evidentiary criteria. It was more theoretical construct than it is really hard science, correct? Well, the whole thing doesn't exist in any one place on the earth. Some of, uh, some places have a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so the story of evolution is in that that chart that you're talking about. The rock chart, it's yeah. It's called the geological chart or geological... Uh, the geological eras. Strata, the, yeah, the eras and mm-hmm. so on. So it breaks up Earth history and the time periods. Mm-hmm. And the time periods are, are kind of labeled and tracked by the type of fossils in them. Mm-hmm. And the, the types of fossils that go from the bottom to the top are supposed to show the process of evolution, right? Right. Well, it gets a lot more complicated in the real world because fossils are sometimes out of place. Rock layers of thick areas that would be huge chunks of time are sometimes missing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're even turned over and mm-hmm. out of order. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of things that have complicated the whole thing, and it shows that the geology, the the simplistic idea of evolution, doesn't always explain the rock. Yeah, so if you look at most of us have seen the textbook example of this layer cake mm-hmm. of rock strata. And right. the, the strata, as you said, is broken up into eons of time. So Jurassic and all the other names that you may not be so familiar with, um, and that beginning the at the beginning rock layer is called the Precambrian. There's there's mm-hmm. there's stuff below. There's the Cambrian, and I don't know all the layers, but there is a real biological mystery between what they call the Precambrian and the Cambrian layer. Mm-hmm. So in the Precambrian, there's not a lot of fossilization. There's hardly any fossils right. in what geologists and biologists would call the Precambrian. It's not a lot of... But then in the Cambrian, what they call is a sudden appearance, more or less, of all different kinds of biological species with, with a variety of different structures of eyes, of exoskeletons, of fins, of antennas, of right. all kinds of things that have no precursor in the Precambrian strata. And... Evolutionary theory, modern evolutionary theory, has had to continually adjust itself to this lack of fossil evidence in Precambrian strata. Where are the precursors to all this life in the Cambrian strata? Right, and so evolutionists have pointed this out, and there's been a lot of discussion of this. It's often called Darwin's enigma. Yeah. The the sudden appearance of the Precambrian fossils of all kinds. Well, it's usually looked at, Dan, in terms of evolution, it's looked at as... A sudden appearance, in, in over, if you think of time as the Earth is very old, mm-hmm. and in looking through the rock layers, it looks like a sudden appearance yeah. of all these fossils of all kinds all at once. Right, and so it's taken to be a kind of record of life of where of where the, the, these these creatures came about, mm-hmm. and all in a short time, but. That's not the way I would look at it at all. And no. Creationists wouldn't look at it that way. So creationists would say it's not a record of the beginning of life. It's a record of death and burial. Yeah. It's when these animals got buried. Right. And it's what you have there, Wayne, exactly what you're saying. When you talk about, this is a very important <clears throat> point, because when you talk about fossils, a lot of, and I didn't, you know, it took me a while before I, I learned this too, but you need to bury something very quickly mm-hmm. in order to preserve it. And the the level of preservation, especially of the fossils in the Cambrian, the lowest Mm -hmm. layer, rather than it being the beginning of time, as you say, it's more of a burial of what would have been around the seafloor of an ancient ocean. Mm -hmm. These are sea-bottom-dwelling creatures, uh, not the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. That's that's the other way to look at the, the strata. And as you said earlier... That strata diagram that you see in textbooks, it, it it doesn't play out that neatly when you go out into the field, right? Because fossils are mixed together. 
I mean, they're, they're yeah. And some of it can be explained by literally the elevation. So the yeah. things on the bottom of the ocean, many of those things can't move very quickly, so they couldn't get away from floodwaters easily. Right. But if you get to up to the around, say, the edge of the ocean, uh, along the uh, edge of a continent, uh-huh. then you'd have different animals that would be buried. And if it's if you're talking about a forest or in a mountain area, then you have animals at different elevations, and so they would be buried at different levels. And I, a couple of couple of weeks ago, I sent you an article that I had seen. I think it was in the Dakotas, uh-huh. uh, where there were shark and marine fossils in and among dinosaur fossils in the yes. same place. Yeah, this sometimes happens. It's often called fossil graveyards, and there's a whole variety of different kinds of fossil graveyards all around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an interesting one that I, I was reading about, about uh, some fossil dinosaurs in the Gobi Desert in China. Oh, wow. This was a whole herd of 20-some um Dinosaurs. Think of it's kind of something like Velociraptor, mm-hmm. it like was in the dinosaur movies. But this is a little different. But it looked kind of like that. So something like Velociraptor going along in a herd of twenty some of them, and they were all buried alive in mud all at once, and it turned to stone. Wow! And they know they were buried alive because when something's buried alive, the the flesh decays after burial, and mm-hmm. this creates a, a chemical process like an acid that stains uh, the rock around the bone. Mm. So they could tell that they were buried alive all at once. And wow. they got stuck all at once in the mud. How did they get stuck in mud, a whole herd of them like this, in the in the Gobi De- what's now the Gobi Desert in China? That's amazing. Uh, so there's a lot of fossils of dinosaurs over in the Gobi Desert in China. Yeah. And uh, you can... You can get into all kinds of interesting examples of this all around the world. You know, Dan, I wouldn't say that one example like that proves Noah's flood. No, no. But the, it's it's the fact of how you have this all around the world, and you have big scale examples of this. Right, right. One of the one of my favorite mysteries in geology. I like to look learn more about this. Is what they call the uh, great. Unconformity, and right. briefly, what that is. If we go back to the the schematic drawing of the ages and the rocks lined up just so, right. there are certain rocks that are a certain age. Well, in the Great Unconformity, and this this geological mystery exists all over the world in different pockets. There is a rock layer in this time scale that Darwin and Lyell created that's missing. It's just not there. And it's not only not there, but in each place where this occurs, and especially most prevalent in the Grand Canyon, it seems like the missing rock layer was literally just carved out with a knife, as if somebody had, it was like cutting cake. And there's a, there's a whole missing rock layer. And a, a lot of geologists, when I've read this, they attribute this to some kind of erosion. But the, the line where this missing rock should be is so defined it boggles yeah. the imagination to it's a think clear flat line. It's a clear flat line where there should be this kind of rock, and it's right. not there. It's just simply not there. But if you had erosion, and now think of this as a surface that's exposed on, on the surface of the earth. Mm-hmm. It, it's exposed to air and rain and and storms and etc. And if if it's going to be like that for a long period of time before something else happens. There's going to be uh, erosion. There's going to be channels. It's going to get moved. Uh, right. It's not going to be a nice, clean, flat line no, anymore. No, no. This uh, and there'll be things like worms that will burrow into it, and yeah. there'll be uh, soil that will form. Right. And things happen over time if it we're exposed. But in many of these rock layers, there's no evidence of that exposure between the layers. Yeah, it looks like the layers were laid down as they are, uh, rather than progressively over millions of years. Uh, one of the things that I was, there was a great uh, video I just saw uh, about a month ago. I, I've forgotten the name of it. Um, but they were talking about with the creation geologist, Steve Austin, and they mm-hmm. were walking through the Grand Canyon. And Dr. Austin was talking about... Um, Something I'd never really considered before, that in order for something like the canyon to happen, you have to have all the layers laid down pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And then you would have to have uh, a floodwater literally cut through that 
that depo- that deposition in a relatively quickly in a relatively quick period of time. So so you just think about making a sandcastle or something and just laying down the sandcastle and then suddenly the tide comes in and cuts through your sandcastle. It's pretty right. much what happened with the canyon the way he explained it. I wish I was more technically minded about it, but right. but he makes the point that if the canyon was billions or millions of years or hundreds of millions of years that you wouldn't see the pristine strata that you do see the linear the linear layers uh given hundreds of millions of years of erosion and weathering and exposure to sun and all of that that you would expect to see a lot more uh, weathering a mm-hmm. lot a lot less definition in the strata in the walls of the canyon than than what we do today yeah so uh when sediment or mud or can be sand that's laid down in layers, um, sometimes it can harden relatively quickly, and sometimes it doesn't harden so quickly. Uh, it could take uh, months. It could take years. It could take hundreds of years mm-hmm. for it to harden. Well, so what Steve Austin was talking about, is the idea that the, the the sediment was laid down in the flood, and then after the flood, he believes there was lakes that kind of water got caught in these lakes, and a dam broke, and it washed through a hill, basically, uh, to make the Grand Canyon. Uh, there's other ideas creationists have come up with on the Grand Canyon, too. So some would say that it started to erode during the flood while the earth was still covered. Yeah. And then when the water rushed off the continent very rapidly, that's when it cut out the canyon. Mm-hmm. So, but the idea is that it would erode the the material out to make the canyon while the material was still Porous soft and, and it was not flat. hardened. Right, right. It that's wasn't... why it's, it's, it's explicable, okay? That's yeah. why it makes sense that this could happen. Yeah, because you couldn't imagine water going through... If the canyon was solid granite or something like that, that, right. that you would need porous, softer material for, for in order for that to cut. So is it a, a little water over a lot of time or yeah. a lot of water in a little time? <laughs> <laughs> um, we talked just a minute ago about uh, the, 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 the brief historic, very brief historical development of, the, of geology. And uh, going back to that original individual, James Hutton, who inspired mm-hmm. Lyell, uh, Hutton says, and Hutton was one of the first to lay down this idea of long ages of sediments being deposited over time. Uh, Hutton makes the assumption that the, this is a quote, the past history of our globe must be explained by what can be seen to be happening now. No powers are, be, are to be employed that are not natural to the globe. No action to be admitted except those of which we know the principle. So, so basically, he's relegating the idea of a geological development of the Earth to principles and, and laws that only we know of and only that we can explain and that only we can see going on right now. Right. So there can't be any supernatural intervention by God. There can't be big catastrophes that would interrupt things and yeah. do th- make changes very rapidly. But notice that's not practical geology. Mm-hmm. That's not even history. Right. That is theoretical speculation right to be able to say well we we can't allow that to happen well i mean nobody has observed this this is a a presumption um but you and i were talking about earlier the the idea that god that the flood certainly did have natural a natural impact on on the world but that in a lot of ways you know god says in genesis that i am bringing the flood waters and in a lot of ways there 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 was a supernatural agency to this whole uh flood thing which also makes it incredible to people that are skeptics and things but the idea is the flood did have we do believe did have supernatural elements to it however god did it it wasn't just by a lot of rain there was a supernatural aspect to how god flooded the world yeah, I think it requires some supernatural intervention by God to cause such a thing to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and creationists have proposed different ideas on how it happened. Uh, but there's there's a tendency, Dan, for Christians and uh, skeptics to misunderstand each other on some of these things. Yeah. So, for example, uh, a Christian may point out to an atheist... Well, there's uh, marine fossils on Mount Everest and on mountains all over the world. Mm-hmm. How did they get way up there? Uh, well, that's a good good point. 
But the atheist would answer was something like this. It would say, well, the marine fossils were formed when it was uh, at the ocean floor, and then the mountain was pushed up. And this took a long period of time. Well, both sides are right in ways, and both sides are wrong in ways. Mm. See, the Christian misses it because they're assuming that Mount Everest existed before the flood mm-hmm. when it didn't. Mm. Mountains were put, formed during and after the flood. So they were. there's good reason to say this. The mountains began to form during the flood and some of them after the flood. Mm-hmm. So Mount Everest didn't exist until after the flood was over. So, mm-hmm. But it, it's also true that the fossils would have formed on the ocean floor, but guess when that happened? While the earth was right. covered. While the earth was covered. With, with water. So it was, they did form in the ocean floor, and plate tectonics, I think, did push them up, push up the mountain. Yeah, there was a great deal of tectonic activity uh, going on with the flood that is was completely, there were a lot of ge- geological anomalies that occurred singularly at the time of the flood that would probably be best explained by what happened during the flood. Right, but the... So, in in explaining how fossils get on Mount Everest, uh, creationists and evolutionists are actually pretty close to explaining it the same way. Yeah. But, except for one difference. The time. Timing. So, the, the evolutionists would say it took long, long periods of time to push up the mountain, and creationists are actually p- proposing that the mountains formed in a shorter time because of what they call catastrophic plate tectonics, Mm -hmm. which is more rapid, or some other mechanism that pushes up the mountains in a shorter time. Yeah, yeah. So what, um, on the science side of things, Wayne, what is is maybe one or two things that really you think show forth uh, global flood? I think the best evidence is when you dig into some of the details about how the rocks themselves form. Hmm. So uh, on my blog article, I go through some of that, and I have links to other pages so you can see pictures and diagrams of some of it. So I kind of use my site as a kind of jumping-off point to other things. But, for example, there are some rocks, uh, sandstone layers, that they can actually track and figure out where the sand grains came from. Wow. If it's if there's a sand grain and rock in say Colorado or something, you can sometimes track that figure out from the composition of it where it came from originally. And wow. and it may have come off over a thousand miles or two thousand miles away. So we have evidence that, that <clears throat> the sand grains the sand grains travel. Yes. And sometimes it's huge boulder boulders. Wow. In the, like in the Grand Canyon, there are huge boulders that were moved hundreds or thousands of miles. I don't know all the, I don't remember all the numbers, but there are extraordinary examples of this mm. where it, it's clearly processes on a much bigger scale than anything we know now. Yeah. And uh, there's also cases where uh, some sandstone used to be believed to require a desert. You can imagine a desert with a lot of dunes, mm-hmm. and somehow the dunes and the the, the desert gets covered over mm. and buried, and that's the idea. So that would take a time, but it turns out that the similar layers can form underwater, and there's a difference between if it happens underwater or versus above ground. Uh, above ground, in a in a, a desert with sand dunes. The dunes have an angle that's a steeper angle in the, the way the layers form. Okay. But underwater, the the angle of those layers will be a shallower, uh, uh, less of an angle. And there's things like that that they can look for to, to figure out how did this rock form. And there's more rocks that have been found to be, they, they used to think that had... Uh, be on the land or in one process and now they've discovered it could also form underwater mm. there's uh turbidity currents things that happen underwater where a uh, mud or a kind of slurry a mix of material can flow down into the water down a slope underwater and bury something 
and it can make um, a bury a, 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 a bunch of fossils and create fossils. Mm. So there's things like this that they used to say required one process above land. It could, maybe it took a long time, but it could happen quicker underwater. So our geological, our knowledge of geology, like any scientific paradigm, is constantly changing. Yes. And it wasn't until, I think, the turn of the 20th century that science developed uh, radiometric dating techniques, which uh, I found to be fascinating because when you find fossils in a rock, you have to date, you can't date certain rocks by radiometric dating. It only works for rocks with certain isotopes. So you have to date the rocks around the rocks where the fossils are and then draw assumptions and conclusions from that. Um, But it's primarily been the way that um, skeptics and atheists have tried to disprove uh, the account of um, Genesis and the flood. Because one of the things I get engaging with Christian apologetics, especially on social media, uh, are the kickbacks from the Internet skeptics that say, well, don't you know geology? There's no way a flood happened. There's no evidence for a flood. And, you know, most of these people that make these claims, I push back with a little of my own scientific knowledge. It's not much, but it's quickly shown that a lot of people who make these claims don't know anything about the rock layers or are, you know, are as much of a lay person as I am. But the primary problem with saying that science or even geology disproves scripture is a misuse and a misapplication of science. The rocks, the physical rocks... Nothing in the physical world disproves anything in the pages of Genesis. What comes into conflict are man's theories about how these rocks came to be. Right. And uh, among creationists, there's a lot of geologists who are creationists, Dan. Uh-huh. And uh, they're well-qualified geologists. They sometimes... Uh, are not uh, treated with the respect they deserve. Yeah. Well, so over the years, there's a lot of different things that have been brought up as challenges to creationists about geology and the flood, right? Uh-huh. And uh, that often has come from geologists. Well, so what is that? What is that prompted? Well, it prompted creationists to go out in the rocks and do field work. Yeah. Creationist geologists have done a lot of good field work. Yeah. And they have found some surprising things that don't fit the evolutionary story. There's a uh, creation, I think it's ICR, their museum is opening here in Dallas. Uh, next year, early next year, I think it is. And they've it's, got a, I'm, I'm hearing good things about Discovery it. Discovery Center. The Discovery Center, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm hearing good things about that. Um, and there's a lot more that's, a lot more good science that's not going to get a lot of popular press because of the... Um, I mean, it's it's hard to be a scientist and be a believer today uh, and to, to have credible traction among your peers when you're publishing things that are contrary to the paradigms that exist. Um, right. And uh, yeah, Answers in Genesis has a really good geologist by the name of Andrew Snelling. He's done a, a lot of good work in answering a lot of these challenges that geologists have brought up over the mm-hmm, years. Mm-hmm. So we don't... Including radioactive dating and other things like how to granite body's cool and yeah and he's he's dealt with a lot of good things like this but if you um i think the thing that i wanted to to emphasize and re-emphasize as we close here is is the idea that the primary way that we know as christians um about the flood is jesus's affirmation of of moses uh, uh, right as historical so dan even if i got some of the science wrong about all of this and i've studied the science of the flood quite a bit um, what if I'm wrong about all that? I'm, what, what am I going to do? I'm, am I going to go against what Jesus taught? No. No, no my science... I, am I going to go against Peter? Am I going to go against Paul where he says Adam and Eve were real people? Yeah. No, of course no. not. Yeah, and that's what we wanted to put people's minds at ease, that Jesus is the first line of defense if you know nothing about geology that the, the and there's nothing wrong we there's a lot of good stuff out there to 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 investigate and that certainly is applicable in a discussion like this but our mm-hmm. primary primary way that we know is through how Jesus has affirmed 
the word, his word right uh, through Moses. I mean, uh, we we've established it in Matthew twenty four and Luke twenty four and Second uh, Peter uh, in Genesis that Jesus Christ affirms the flood because he brought it. He put mm-hmm. Noah into the ark. He was there. Right. Uh, and he attests to it, and his word is true. And he calls himself in John fourteen six the way, the truth, and the life. So my case for the flood rests upon Christ's uh, shoulders, as, as it should. Um, and the science, it's good to know the science. It's good to, to, to do that. But as you say, we are prone to get the science wrong and the science can always change. And so even if the scientific paradigms collapse and we get the mechanism wrong, uh, the truth of God's word still stands in terms of um, the flood actually happening and, and being a, a judgment upon mankind. And so we do what the scriptures say and we stand upon Christ and the testimony that he's left us in his word. And that is how we that is how I primarily know, because I'm not a geologist, but um, but study, study the scripture and study geology if you have the time and we will link your article wayne uh in the description below here so that you can uh, click on that and go find more uh excellent resources on this incredible topic that we barely even scratched the surface with mm-hmm. <laughs> but i think i think we did pretty good in at least bringing it back to to christ and and the importance and the primary importance of his revelation to us first and foremost right we have to accept uh, the authority of scripture and and if Jesus taught it and believed it, then so do I. Yeah, I mean, but that doesn't mean we can't explore the science. No, that's not a shutdown on and, the science. And no. uh, creationists have different theories on how the flood happened. We may not figure it all out, but I think there has been a lot of success in finding evidence for a global flood. Yeah, I agree. I think there is uh, there's plenty. I think the film you were mentioning a while ago, or you you didn't give the name of it's it's called uh, Is Genesis History. That's right. That's right. And yeah. it's out there. That's a great. I, it's a great program. That is. I enjoyed it. I think you can get on. I got it on uh, Amazon, and then there's like secondary episodes you can get for a couple dollars and you can watch those as yeah well. i think there's going to be some sequel kind of things yeah that follow up with that they talk to uh danny faulkner yeah uh who is a christian astronomer mm-hmm. um and it's a really well produced uh documentary i think that uh, they talked to steve austin and uh, walking through the canyon that was really a, a probably one of my favorite parts of the film yeah i'd recommend that it yeah so if film. you uh want to explore that question that's a great resource is genesis history uh, I also have another book uh, from what I took some of the notes for this podcast called Coming to Grips with Genesis, Biblical Authority and the Age of the Earth by Terry Mortensen and uh, Thane Yuri. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name properly, but they are the editors, Coming to Grips with Genesis. They have some interesting essays to lead you and guide you in a particular direction about these questions. Uh, excellent resources, but uh, first and foremost, we rest and trust in the word that Jesus has left us. So, Absolutely. Wayne, it's been a great podcast. Wonderful to have you out in Poolville, and we will see you again next time on... Good Heavens. Good Heavens. Good Heavens.